0: Hello, this is Russell Moore, and this is First Word, our study through the Bible's first book, Genesis, as we seek there the kingdom of Christ. And before we get started, one of the things that really helps is if you hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you leave a review, if you you like our uh, time together, if you leave a review there, it helps people uh, to find their way to the podcast and to join with us. You know, there's a lot of conversation right now about social media. I find myself talking about uh, social media all the time to people who sometimes they're really distracted by it. Sometimes they're really discouraged by it. Uh, someone was talking to me yesterday about how uh, she feels as though she's, um, she's drawn to it so much that she can't uh, look away from it. And one of the things that that I realized sort of early on uh, with uh, social media is that there came a point where I realized I was talking to uh, a different group of people than just the small group of my friends that I was talking to at the very beginning. And one of the things that immediately went away is the ability to joke and and to uh, make what to me seemed to be obviously sarcastic uh, comments. I think I realized that when my friend David Platt, some of you are familiar with his uh, preaching and teaching and writing, he he wrote a book called Radical uh, that talked about um, freeing uh, Christians from the American dream and about giving and and sacrifice. And he and I were uh, together in Louisville, Kentucky, and I posted on social media here with David Platt riding around in his new Bentley. Uh, Isn't the Lord good? Now I was. Totally joking, obviously. Uh, He has no Bentley and would would, uh, be mortified at the very thought. But most of the people that I know and most of my friends would have known that right offhand. But immediately, uh, people started saying, I think that's terrible that he would be spending money on a Bentley. I can't believe that that uh, is the case. And I thought, really? Do you do you people really think that I was serious when I said that? And as time has gone on, I've said, you know, this just isn't uh, a fun place uh, to, to talk anymore. But I felt a lot better A year or so ago, when I was reading uh, Alan Jacobs' brilliant book, uh, the year of our Lord nineteen forty-three, in, in which he was talking about uh, when C.S. Lewis was writing the Screw Tape letters, and there were it was originally written as articles that came out bit by bit. Of course, if you're familiar Screw Tape letters, it's about a senior devil giving advice to a junior devil about how to successfully uh, end up uh, tempting and destroying the life of uh, a Christian. And uh, Jacobs talks about how someone wrote in and said, I can't believe that you would publish this. Much of the advice given in these letters uh, seems to me to be not only erroneous, but positively diabolical. And I laughed out loud when I read that because it's literally diabolical. It's being written from <laughs> a Diablos from a, from a devil uh, to another devil. That's the point. Now, I think sometimes when we, when we start uh, thinking about screw tape letters, we start thinking about uh, the way that we all encounter temptation in our own lives, uh, I think sometimes there's a sense of missing the point and not seeing exactly how, as the Bible puts it, subtle uh, this can be. And so I want us to look uh, today at Genesis chapter three, and starting with verse one, let's go through verse six. And since this is a shorter uh, passage, I'll, I'll read it for us today. And the Bible says this, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now, one of the things that sometimes people wrestle with when they come to this passage is to say, well, is this a passage about human history? and about the, the the universal human condition? Is this something that took place in space and time, or is this about psychology? Uh, in other words, to say, is this telling us about something that happened in the past to the ancestors of the human race, or is this uh, giving us an example of something that happens in all of our lives, that we, we go from a, a place of relative innocence to temptation to fall? Well, the, the answer to that is, in some sense, both. The, the Scripture is making clear here in Genesis 3 that at the very beginning, something has gone seriously awry. Uh, With humanity in uh, the person of Adam and Eve. Paul talked about this when he says, As in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. But the scripture also makes clear that this is a pattern that is repeated in the life of every person except one since Adam, every human person but one since Adam. And that repeated cycle shows up in 2 Corinthians uh, eleven three, 3, where Paul writes to that church and says, as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, uh, I'm afraid that your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So this happened in the beginning, and this uh, continues to manifest itself in every human life. So the question is, how then? I think that you can see in what God has revealed about what took place in this moment, what sometimes people refer to as the original sin or the ancestral sin, uh, how the, the process of temptation works, not just historically, but also how it works in your life. What are the the steps that are involved uh, here? And what I would suggest to you is there are really three questions that are being posed here uh, in this text, and all three of those questions are biblically uh, crucial to, to understanding what's taking place in terms of temptation. And so let's, let's sort of work through each of those questions. The first one I would say is, who are you? That, that's the question, and it has to do with the issue of identity. And so think about how this uh, starts. It starts with this description of the serpent. Serpent is more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. We'll come to that in a second. But he's speaking to the woman. Now, remember, we talked about uh, last time, if you come through uh, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, God creating humanity, male and female, in his, in his own image. And remember the charge that he is giving, not just to the man, but to the man and to the woman, which is to say, I'm putting all things under your feet, including everything that creeps uh, along the ground, everything that flies through the air, everything that, that swims in uh, the waters. He has said this about her and about Adam, about both of them together. And then a serpent comes, with which the scripture is really clear to say is a creation. This is, this is a beast of the field, so not in the same category as the man and the woman that the Lord God had made. So this is not a God. This is not some opposing force in the universe. This is a creature. Now, there are some people uh, who would suggest, well, the serpent here is not referring to Satan, the the imagery of the devil that we'll have uh, later on in the Bible. It's not, not the same thing, they will say, because uh, we don't see Satan spoken of until much later uh, in the biblical canon. You don't have the devil talked about that much uh, in the Old Testament, although you do some. And so they would say, this is not uh, the devil. I reject that argument. I think that the way that... uh, Paul uses that serpent uh, language that we talked about a little bit earlier, the way that Revelation uses the reptile imagery, the dragon imagery, uh, along with the imagery of Leviathan uh, that we see elsewhere in Scripture. I think that the serpent here is uh, a manifestation of uh, the devil, and I think it's really important to see the way that, if that's the case... The way that you have a merging here of the angelic order, the fallen angelic order, we see later on, Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, the fallen angelic order that was meant to be a minister, book of Hebrews says, to humanity, to be a a servant of humanity and the animal uh, order the beast of the field. This dark presence is inhabiting a beast of the field. Now, Leon Cass is a philosopher who wrote what I think, I think I've referenced it here before, I think is the most fascinating commentary on Genesis uh, that I have ever read. And he he would not agree with me on uh, the devil as the serpent. But what he would say is that it's interesting the way that the serpent here is spoken of as a beast of the field, which means that this would have been included in those that are rejected in Genesis 2. Remember, all of the beasts of the field, Adam surveyed them all and named them all, and none were found to be a helpmate or a companion of uh, to him. And so Cass says, this is telling you that what Adam needed was not just rationality. Serpent here is rational, it's not just communication. Serpent is uh, able to communicate that there's something more to companionship and communion uh, there. But he also says, and I find this argument uh, really persuasive, The way that in so many human cultures over the centuries, the serpent has been used as an image of, sometimes it seems to be contradictory and conflicting uh, sorts of of images. So you'll you'll have images of uh, the serpent in terms of newness of life because the, the serpent sheds its skin and, and starts uh, over again. So fertility and, and health and life and also destruction and predation, the sort of image that most of us uh, think of when we think of a serpent. And What Cass argues is this. He says that the serpent is uniquely a, a manifestation of those things because it, it has both as he puts it, veracity and hyper-rationality. Now, let's think about that for a minute. Uh, Cass says, the serpent is, and this is a quote from him, the serpent is a mobile digestive tract that swallows its prey whole. And in this sense, the serpent stands for pure appetite. At the same time, the serpent is cold, steely-eyed, and unblinking, and in this respect, he is the image of pure attentiveness and icy calculation. I remember the first time that I read that in Cass, and I thought to myself, there really is something to that, and that's, that's one of the reasons why, for many people, not for all people, I know there are some people who keep snakes in their house as pets, I can't imagine that. But there are people who do that, and maybe some of you uh, do that. But for many people, part of the repulsion that we feel toward snakes is not just the sense that they can harm us, but those two things. There's a wildness to the snake, and there also seems to be a, a coolness, a coldness Uh, to the snake at the same time. Rationality and and appetite. So you you can see that showing up elsewhere in Scripture. So think of, for instance, when Jesus says, you are to be wise as serpents, but harmless as doves. Uh, Think about the way that that Scripture uh, speaks of the dragon, this reptilian uh, figure seeking to devour so appetite. So the the devil here is manifesting himself in this creature that we have come to know as being both of those two things, and both of them are important because you have rationality, the serpent is uh, more cunning, or as the old King James would put it, more subtle than any of the other uh, beasts of the field, and this sense of uh, veracity, the sense of being a predatory animal. So, if you uh, look at, uh, for instance, the way that you you see that rationality and irrationality uh, taking place together, you can see that in, for instance, the way that Scripture will talk about the the plans and the uh, if, think of Ephesians six, the war plans. Uh, of the devil and the and the way that he seeks to kill and to destroy. So there's a there's a a genius and a brilliance and an intelligence in a dark way to all of that. But also uh, think of the irrationality. I mean, Revelation chapter 12 says that the devil rages all the more because he knows his time is short. That's an irrational, animalistic sort of way of responding, uh, rather than if someone knows my ultimate end is going to be uh, judgment and condemnation and still is raging all the more knowing that he is going to be defeated, well, that shows up then in the way that human beings in sin image that evil Uh, So Ephesians 2, for instance, says we were following the prince of the power of the air because we were living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So human sin is spoken of both in terms of uh, rationality, in terms of this plotting and planning and the imaginations of the heart. Think of Romans 1, for instance, and also irrationality, kind of wildness uh, to the way that we behave, which is one of the reasons why often you will, you will see people and they'll be in the midst of destroying their lives. I can't tell you how many times I've sat down with someone and said, just look at this. How is this working for you? Uh, I remember just this chilling moment. When I was sitting with this very young man, uh, maybe 24 or 25, and he had his wife and he had their baby who had just been born maybe a month or two before in a car seat on the floor in front of him in my office telling me he's having an affair, he's leaving his wife and his baby, he doesn't feel one pang of conscience about it at all. And I, I, I just tried to reason with them. Don't you see what it is that you are doing? And of course, there's a sense in which sin clouds the mind. We, we don't see that. We don't recognize that. There's a, there's a kind of irrationality and wildness to it. But then also you see manifestations of human evil that are cool and hyper-rational. I mean, think of the surprise that came to so many people when they saw, for instance, the rise of Adolf Hitler's uh, Nazi Reich, and so many people were so surprised by that because they said these aren't uncivilized people. You know, the, the expectation that culture and civilization and learning and education would uh, would free you from the the baser instincts, and they saw people who could talk about philosophy and who could listen to Wagner operas, and they were carrying out the most horrific and barbaric and bloodthirsty and evil uh, regime that the world has ever seen. Well, it's because the way that God has designed us is to receive revelation, not just the reason but through imagination and affection and worship. We're we're whole human beings. And so the, the path to temptation can move us away from God either by taking us in a direction of coldness, uh, a really cerebral uh, sort of response to God, or in a direction of hotness, sort of uh, being... Uh, compelled by the passions or feeling as though one is being compelled by the, the passions. And so if you think about think about how that works in, in every human life, this is showing up here. And the, the first question that is being asked is, who are you? That, that shows up in the fact the serpent is addressing and speaking to the woman. So what's happening here, is that the serpent is asking the woman to see herself in two ways, two contradictory ways, but both of those ways are not actually who she is created to be. He wants her to see herself as a beast, as an animal, because she has dominion over him, according to the decree of God, but he is acting as though he has dominion over her. And of course, ultimately takes dominion over her. He wants her to see herself as an appetite functioning by instinct rather than as an image bearer directed by the word of God. He wants her to see herself as less than what she's created to be. And then he turns around and wants her to see herself as more than what she's created to be. So on the one hand, an animal, and on the other hand, as a goddess, you will be able to distinguish good from evil, and you will be as God, or uh, some translations would say as God's, as, as God's Adam and Eve, you, you will transcend your human limits. Now, if you think about that language of good and evil and the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what does that mean? Well, think about the way that the scripture speaks of this, often in terms of maturity. Uh, the, the child uh, before he learns good from evil. And I think what's really important is uh, 1 Kings chapter 3, where Solomon is named king in the place of his father, David. And he says, I am just a child, not knowing how to go out and to come in. What he asks for from God is wisdom to be able to discern between good and evil for what reason? So that he can rule and so that he can govern the, the people of Israel. The wisdom that comes with knowledge of good and evil, comes through maturity, is for the purpose of service in, in terms of ruling and governing. You see that showing up in the way that Solomon is is uh, judging. Uh, you, we, we hear that language of judging and we tend to think of you're bad, you're good, but it's much more complicated than that. He's, he's having to decide disputes. So uh, the two women, for instance, that come before him and, uh, one of them rolled over and accidentally uh, killed her, her baby in the night, and she takes the other's baby. Solomon has the wisdom. He knows enough about uh, maternal instinct, and he knows enough about human connection to know what sorts of questions to ask to be able to discern who is actually the mother and who is not. That's, that's what the knowledge of good and evil is intended for, and it comes through God's revelation— and through God's word, not through human autonomy. The human being is not the ultimate decider of good and evil. And so what the serpent is asking Eve, our mother, to do is to act as though she is free from the word of God and the revelation of God in order to decide her own timetable for maturity, to decide her own standards of what is good and evil, what is right and wrong, and to, uh, and to grasp. You, you think of Paul's language in Philippians. This is a, a different uh, reality here, but the, but the language would be similar to to count equality with God or at least the illusion of equality with God, as something to be grasped here. That's what the serpent is trying to to have happen. Now, why this is important for you right now is because James is gonna talk about this. Jesus's brother, James, in Jerusalem in the first century is going to say the same dynamic is at work in temptation for all of us. Question of who are you? What's your identity? So in James 1, 9 through 11, for instance, He says, let the lowly exalt in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. So in other words, to say uh, what he's going to go on to say later, don't you know that the poor have been chosen to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? And don't you know that every rich person is going to die? is not going to be able to bring anything with him or her uh, out of this uh, world. And so you, if you're lowly, you recognize your exaltation. If you're living high, you recognize your humiliation. And why? Because God recognizes that egotism or despair both lead to the same place, and that is yielding to sin. If I think that I am more than what I am, a creature, then I'm going to think that the standards that God has given don't apply to me. And that's true. When I think of almost every person that I have seen destroyed by some temptation or another, whether it's Economic or sexual or family or in the workplace or wherever it is, almost never is it somebody who doesn't know what's right and wrong. Instead, it's almost always somebody who thinks that those categories don't apply to that person. I'm above those limits. Or the same thing can happen for somebody who thinks too lowly of themselves. So somebody who uh, will think, you know, I'm just a collection of appetites. Uh, I don't have any choice uh, but to act in this way. And I think we've, we've all seen that with sexual temptation probably uh, more than anything else just because of how wild uh, that can, can be in terms of the passions. But it applies to everything else as well. I, I think of often a young woman who came to see me after I was preaching somewhere one time, and she said that she didn't want to get married uh, or to have children. I said, well, that's fine. That's, that's, uh, that, and I started talking about what, what the Apostle Paul talks about, a life uh, given in devotion to Christ. And she said, no, she said, I, I don't want to marry or to have children because... And she started talking about all the people in her family who had died by suicide, and she said, "I know that's going to happen to me, and I don't want my potential future children to ever have to live through what I lived through." And she says, "What? Well, well, that doesn't uh, that doesn't mean that because this has happened in your family that you are predestined toward carrying that out yourself. Not at all. She was seeing herself in a state of despair." that there was, there was no other alternative to her. And what she needed was a word from God to say, uh, no, uh, you, you, are, you are able by God's grace not to go in that direction. So despair can lead to uh, that as well. So the question of who are you, that's the first step. The second step, the second question I think is, what do you want? So the question of desire. So if you think of what's happening here is that the the serpent is speaking to the woman and she sees that the fruit of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil is good for food, a delight to the eyes, and able to make one wise. Now, think about this for a minute. This is not, at least at this stage, this is not someone who is saying, I want to be free from the tyranny of God. John Milton's Satan or, or, or something. This is said somebody who's looking at beauty, nourishment, self-advancement. None of these things are in and of themselves bad. As a matter of fact, uh, all of these things are pronounced by God in Genesis 1 and 2 to be good in the way that they are uh, created. So, what the serpent wants to do is not to create something new. What he wants to do is to appeal to a good and created desire, but to twist it and to and to pull it in a different direction. So this is what, again, to go back to James, what he's talking about when he says, when you're being tempted don't say I'm being tempted by God because God is not tempted by sin and he does not tempt uh, other people. He said, instead, each one is lured away by his own desires. Now, this is not the same, uh, the sort of desires that you and I have that that we're lured by are not the same as would be the case here with this unfallen uh, humanity that we see here in the first part of Genesis chapter three, we're in a in a much worse shape because uh, we are fallen creatures uh, already, and so we want what we don't want to want. That 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 shows up in different ways with different people, but we have desires that are themselves fallen and are twisted. What she has. Are desires that are created by God to be good, and Satan is twisting them and pulling them away. So, for instance, that desire for glory—I mean, this is this is one of the, uh, the the primary problems that human beings have. You can you can see it in any number of ways the, the need for glory. And some people find that in terms of wanting applause or approval from people. Some people, uh, they, they want to find it in the safety of the herd. People, some people find it by just identifying themselves with their achievements. It, it shows up in all sorts of different ways. Well, God has created us for glory in Christ, but what temptation does is to take that desire for glory and twist it toward self-glory, to find it somewhere outside of uh, Jesus Christ. And so what's happening is the serpent here is is attempting to move her along. I think about And I wrote about this in Tempted and Tried, and the imagery stays with me all the time because the first time that I heard this, I was listening to a radio interview with Temple Grandin. She's autistic. She's an agriculture livestock specialist, scientist, and she invented a device that enabled people to slaughter cows with kindness. Uh, this is the way the radio uh, segment put it. it. In other words, to take out all the unnecessary cruelty to the slaughtering of cattle, which according to her is exactly what the, the meat industry wanted because if you have an alarmed and stressed uh, animal being slaughtered, then that's going to release stress hormones that's going to change the quality of the meat. So she created a system where you make sure that there's nothing that's going to be alarming to the cattle. And she said that can be something as simple as just having a coat that is left on on a, a fence uh, somewhere. Instead, you have a very uniform uh, situation. You have very gentle curves uh, that are going through until at the moment of slaughter— the cow is not alarmed at all but is simply being lifted up and suddenly killed now when she was talking about this i was thinking this is this is really uh, exactly the sort of imagery that scripture is using of temptation that there's a a gradual moving along so if you think of uh, for instance in proverbs chapter 8 there's this picture of Um, a father talking to his son about wrecking his life with adultery. And what you notice as you move through there is that it happens in all of these stages. He just happens to run into her. She just happens to have her husband out of town on a trip. And it moves through all of these stages. And ultimately, what the, the text says is that the temptation is hunting him. So there's an intelligence uh, behind it that is not not seeking to alarm him. So if you think about how it is that we're moved into temptation, very rarely is that going to happen through something that alarms you or scares you or worries you. Well, why? Because if you think of the way that the way that the Christian tradition is defined the problem here it's the world the fallen environment that we all live in what we see as normal and what we see as abnormal it's the flesh it's those created desires that are now fallen and so they're they're twisted and it's the devil there's an outside intelligence that is seeking destruction seeking the one whom he may devour as as Jesus says and so sometimes people will, if you hear Christians talk about sometimes, uh, well, I knew that this was God's will because there was an open door, or I knew that this was not God's will because it's, so there was a closed door. I, in most ways, I think that that's, a, that's actually a good way of, of thinking about things. You, you're asking uh, God to, if he wants you to do something, to make that possible. You give you signs along the way of his favor in, in doing that, and, and you're asking God, if you would not like me to do this, then shut the door. Don't don't uh, let it become possible to me. But that reasoning can go too far, because there are a lot of people who take the same reasoning as it applies to sin, and think, well, there's an open door uh, that is is here, and this just feels right and it's because you've been cultivated to the point through a series of smaller yieldings to temptation or through a, a, a moment of a particular weakness in your life where you, you don't have the spiritual resources to combat it. That desire leads to those fallen desires lead to more fallen desires to the point that as second peter 2 says you become insatiable for sin i think of uh, often of frederick beekner who said that uh, he was talking about lust particularly but it could apply to all sorts of of sins that are cravings where he said it's the craving for for salt for someone who is dying of thirst this is It doesn't satisfy. It instead uh, just exacerbates the problem. Well, that's the question of what is it that you actually want? And so when the the woman here is looking to uh, this site in front of her, what the devil wants to do is to point her to the trees that she can have. Did God say that you couldn't eat any of this? She says, no, he, he gave us all of the trees of the garden that are good for food except for this one. So she's got a link that she can make. She knows what it is to be fed. She knows what it is to, to take nutrition from God. She knows what it is to find all of that goodness. The serpent wants her just to locate all of that somewhere else than in God's provision. And then that leads to the third question, and that is, where are you going which is the question of your future. So again, to go back to James, uh, he wrote that this desire, when it is fully grown, gives way to death. So what what the devil does is to take one aspect of her future and alter it. God says in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die, but you shall not surely die, he says. And then he wants to give her another, Uh, version of her future that she can grasp on her own, which is to say, the day that you eat of it, you shall be as God or as God's knowing good uh, from evil. So this idea, God doesn't see you, God doesn't know, God is keeping a future from you that is good, but you can grasp it and you can claim it. That's, That's going to be your future. Now, both of those things show up, in the way that when we're at a point of temptation and we're not seeing the future clearly, we don't see the way therein is death, as the scripture uh, puts it. We don't see what's coming around the bend. And we also don't see the goodness that God has for us in the way that God is preparing us. I mean, think of, of Romans 8 and 2 Corinthians 4, preparing us for this eternal weight of of glory. We don't see that or, or we willfully turn away from that and we don't recognize it. Even when we when we think about the fact that we know we're all going to die cognitively, there's not many people who don't know that they're biological creatures who are ultimately uh, going to die just like everyone else. But the problem isn't cognitively. The problem is imaginatively and affectionately. We can't imagine or feel the weight of that in a way that can cause us to see that this life is a vapor. And that means that what's waiting for us is worth the cross-carrying right now. We don't see the future. And we also are not able to see the horror of judgment. And of uh, condemnation and of loss and of the curse that we're going to see uh, in the next in the next section of this chapter. Now, here's where this really comes to uh, a conclusion, and that is in the life of Jesus Christ. So if you look at uh, Matthew and Luke, both are giving genealogies of Jesus, Near the the beginnings of, of both of their gospels, in Luke's Gospel, he goes all the way back and adam uh, was, was the son of Adam, and Adam was the Son of God, so he's, he's tying Adam to Jesus in terms of sonship uh, in both Matthew and luke and and also in Mark, you have the baptism of Jesus taking place. Jesus comes out of the water and a voice comes from the heavens, "You are my." or this is my beloved son, and with you, or with him, I am well pleased. Now, as soon as that happens, though, Jesus is immediately taken by the Spirit into the wilderness where he is tempted by the devil. And what does the devil do with our Lord Jesus? He, he asks those same three questions. If you are the Son of God, and I think both parts of that are important, if you are the son of God, and if you are the son of God. So he, like us, wants Jesus either to see himself as something less than the son of God that God has just declared him to be, he's questioning it with the if, or to see himself as something other than the son of God, so who is, who is uh, on a mission here. He wants him to count in his humanity, to count equality with God as something to be grasped, Philippians chapter 2. So he's, he's questioning his identity. Then he's appealing to desire. So if you think of those uh, temptations that are there, none of those temptations that the, that the devil is giving to Jesus are in and of themselves bad things, they are how you get there, but but they're not in and of themselves bad things. Eating bread is a good thing. Jesus does it later. He's going to do it with us. He does. He, he serves us bread uh, every time we come together at the Lord's table. But Satan wants him to take that bread to question whether or not uh, God will feed him. Question whether or not he can live by. Alone, but by every word that proceeds through the mouth of God, and to take it at the direction of the serpent. Uh, you know, throwing yourself off of a pinnacle of the temple doesn't sound like something that most of us are tempted by. But what is the what is the the fundamental issue there? It's a question of vindication of uh, being delivered by God and being seen publicly to be delivered by God. That's a good thing too, and ultimately. Uh, he he cries out. The book of Hebrews says, "With loud cries to the one who can deliver him from death, and he was heard." And ultimately, of course, every eye will will see and and every uh, every ear will hear this reality. But take it, force it, test the Lord your God. The devil says, "And I will give to you." all of the kingdoms of this world and their glory. Is it good for Jesus Christ to have all of the kingdoms of this world and his glory? Yes, and that's the end goal. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. But the devil wants him to grasp that, to take that through Satanism, through worshiping and giving worship, to the devil as though that's where this comes from. So what the devil is trying to do here is not just to tempt Jesus, but to adopt him, to say, I am your father and I am the one to give you your inheritance and he does the same thing for you and he does the same thing for me. But the good news is Adam and Eve fell in a God-blessed garden but Jesus triumphed over temptation in a God-cursed desert. And triumphing over temptation, he is able then to be a high priest for all of those who come to him. He is the one who offered up himself through the cross. And when you are joined to Jesus Christ by faith, that means that you share a spirit with him, which means that you have the resources In order to triumph over whatever is uh, tempting you, resist the devil and he will flee from you. You're not ever going to be free from temptation. You may be free from a particular temptation, but another one is going to replace it. You're not going to be free in this life. You will in glory, but not until then. But this is the triumph of Christ that we can see by looking at the wreckage of what happens here and also by becoming wise as to how it is that we too can be led astray, we can be led toward temptation, and we can be led to the sort of misery and heartbreak uh, that we're going to see in the verses that come after this. That's our past history. It's the history of the human race. It's also our present story, and that means we ought to be thinking very carefully about what sort of counsel and what sort of advice that we're hearing in our heads because some of it is downright diabolical. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you haven't yet subscribed on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or Pocket Cast or wherever you listen, please do. And if you're listening on a smartphone, tap or swipe the cover art and you can find the show notes, including some details you might have missed in this episode. And we'll pick up right here in Genesis 3 next time with another first word This is Russell Moore, Onward. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.